Good morning, and happy Father's Day, men. Hope you have a wonderful day. The last few weeks, we have been considering Hannah, a godly woman who honored the Lord in her relationship with regard to her son Samuel. Today, we have a sad, pathetic, and tragic example of Eli, who dishonored the Lord in the way that he dealt with his sons. One could not encounter a more striking contrast than that of Hannah and Eli. Eli is an individual from whom we would expect so much more. He proves to be terribly disappointing. In seeking to protect his sons, he actually harms his sons and the nation of Israel as a whole. Eli fails miserably both as a father and as a priest. The narrative begins by introducing us to the sinful behavior of Hophni and Phinehas, priestly sons of Eli. However, the focus of the narrative is actually upon Eli. If you look at 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12, it begins, Now the sons of Eli. Notice that the fact of the relationship that the sons had to Eli is what is front and center. We should not lose sight of that fact. If we lose sight of that, we lose sight of the main point of the narrative. In all of this, we're to be struck by Eli's behavior, Eli's response or lack thereof to his son's wickedness. So we are now introduced to the shocking wickedness of Hophni and Phinehas. In verse 12, they are described as worthless men. Worthless men. Let that sink in for a moment. Remember that these are priests in Israel. They were to be spiritual leaders of the nation. However, they were rebellious. Literally, the word worthless refers to their being sons of Belial, which would be tantamount of saying that they were sons of the devil. They were very ungodly individuals and the way in which they conducted themselves. And the reason for this harsh assessment is because they did not know the Lord, the end of verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. Why? They did not know the Lord. Now if you unpack that for a moment, it teaches us that they were not converted. They were not born again. They were not in a right relationship with God. But it says even more than that, for it also has the connotation that they were rebellious toward God. These are very strong words. They were, in fact, acting like Pharaoh had acted in the land of Egypt. We should not miss the contrasting statement that comes in chapter 2 when God is addressing the establishment of the priesthood after God delivered the Egyptians from the hand of Pharaoh. As the man of God is speaking to Eli in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 27, we read, And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I have to go to the house of your father, 
of all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Now remember the words of Pharaoh when Moses came to him and demanded that Pharaoh would let the people of Israel go that they might serve him. In Exodus chapter 5, verse 2, we read, But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? And now these defiant words. I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. It is in that vein that we are told that Hophni and Phinehas do not know the Lord. And they are raising their same fist to God that Pharaoh raised when he was not willing to listen to God and to do what was right. The children of Israel were delivered from Pharaoh in order that they might serve God. Now, here are these young men that are supposed to be helping the Israelites serve God, and they, in fact, themselves do not know the Lord. We now move to the description of the kind of wickedness that the uh, sons were evidencing. Hophni and Phinehas misused their priestly, priestly office for personal gratification. Starting at verse 13, it reads, The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come, while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. And he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, they abused the people of God when the people came to offer a sacrifice, verse 15 and 16. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if a man said to him, let him burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, the reason that they would say that is because the law explicitly prescribed that the meat was to be cooked before the priest would eat of it. And so it would defile the sacrifice. So if someone would say, that's not right, uh, we're not going to do that, I'm going to burn the sacrifice first, notice at the end of verse 16, he would say, no, you must sure give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. They are threatening bodily harm to the individuals that will not go along with the sinful practice of these priests. Now, we could go into a lengthy diatribe about Old Testament laws and sacrifices and show you a number of instances, even in this short narrative, in which they are violating the law of God. But we're not going to take the time to do that this morning. Instead, I just point you to the climax statement of verse 17. Thus, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of God. These were not some uh, misdemeanors. These were high crimes. These were great offenses to God. And the reason is, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Through, with contempt. Through their actions, Hophni and Phinehas were belittling the offerings of the Lord. They were trivializing this great sacrifice that was being made. They were undermining the faith of those that came to offer sacrifices. They were 
contrary to the very priestly function that they were to be offering. God is displeased with the action of Hophni and Phinehas, to say the least, for their actions were very egregious. God was angered by their behavior. However, Eli's response to all of this is even more shocking. This is what we want to focus upon this morning. Eli's response to the sinful behavior of his sons. The theme is Eli's great sin in failing to restrain his son's sinfulness in the carrying out of their priestly duties. Key verse is 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 13. And I declare to him, that is to Eli, I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. That is the main focal point of these narratives in chapters 2 and 3 that Eli did not restrain his sinful sons. So as we unpack that this morning, we're going to look at the repeated rebuke that Eli receives and how he resisted uh, the rebuke that he was receiving. First, Eli refrains to restrain his sons upon hearing the rebuke of the people. Eli is very well aware of what his sons are doing. If you look at chapter 2, verse 22, it reads, Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to Israel. The sinfulness of his sons was widely known. These were not isolated incidents, but they were repeated. They were habitual. We saw earlier that it said it was the custom of the priests. It was the way in which they were acting. In verse 22, it says he kept hearing all that his sons were doing. So there came report after report after report. And the actions of these sons were affecting the entire nation. If you look at verse 22. Now Eli was very old. He kept hearing all that his sons were doing. And now this phrase, to all Israel, everybody is being affected by this. All those that were coming to offer sacrifice. But the word was being spread concerning these priests and their attitude to the sacrifice. And so they are undermining the faith and the religious duties and obligations of the entire nation of Israel. Eli is not only aware of his son's sinful actions associated with the offerings, Eli is also aware of their sinful actions and their abuse of the female servants of the Lord. Verse 22. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel. And now this, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. These were women who had consecrated themselves and dedicated themselves to the service of the Lord. These were individuals that had uh, committed themselves to honoring the Lord in their faithful service in duties at the tabernacle. But Hophni and Phinehas were corrupting them. 
defiling them by having a sexual relationship to them. And as such, he was, and they were totally, uh, as I say, defiling these women and going against honoring God. He was, they were undermining these women's service and faith. Now Eli confronts his sons over their evil doing in verse 23. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil doings from all the people. So Eli confronted them and said what they were doing was evil. And so in that sense, he addresses the sins that his sons are committing. And Eli even goes so far as to warn his sons regarding the seriousness of their sins. The people are outraged by the conduct of Eli's sons in verse 24. He says, my sons, it's no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. So he knows that the people are disgruntled. The, the people are not uh, approving of the conduct of Hophni and Phinehas. But Eli stresses that they're not just sinning against the people, but Hophni and Phinehas are sinning against God himself. Verse 25. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? There's no question that what they are doing is hurting and harming uh, individuals. They are associating the offering of sacrifices with the threat of brute force. They are defiling these women. They are destroying the faith of the people of God. It's obvious what they're doing to people. But Eli says, you're not just offending people, you're offending God. He says, if someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? So Eli says, what can I do? How can I protect you? Don't you understand what you are doing? We're told of the seriousness of the sins of Eli's son. Nevertheless, Eli's sons continue in their rebellion. Verse 25. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, <coughs> excuse me, who can intercede for him? And now these words, but they would not listen to the voice of their father. They would not listen to the voice of their father. And they were not going to repent. They were not going to change. Uh, they were not going to correct their ways. And so God is going to intervene and strike them dead for their sinfulness. The end of verse 25. But they would not listen to the voice of their father. And now these striking words, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. This is an editorial comment for us to understand the seriousness of the condition of what was going to result from the disobedience of these sons that God was going to put them to death. It's very possible that though these words were not spoken to Eli directly, but are an editorial comment for our benefit, it's very likely that Eli understood what was the danger that these sons were facing when he says, who can intercede for them? He's well aware of what happened to Nadab and Abihu, sons of Aaron. He realizes the responsibility of the priesthood and what God says in accountability concerning that priesthood. 
The point is, God is not going to sit idly by and simply watch all this happen. But Eli's sons do not fear their actions at all. They don't care that they're hurting people, and they don't care that they're dishonoring God. So if Eli will not act, God will. Application, well, we're to be struck by Eli's compliance. He speaks to his son, but he takes no action. He does confront them, but yet the sinful behavior goes on. We might ask, well, what could he do? Keep that question in the back of your mind. Number two, Eli fails to restrain his sons even after the rebuke of the man of God. First, Eli was rebuked by the people in the reports that he heard by his son. But now God is going to send a prophet to Eli to speak to Eli and let him know of God's displeasure. 1 Samuel 2.27 And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, God confronts Eli with regard to his priestly privileges and duties that his family enjoys. God reminds Eli of his priestly duties in verse 27. There came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father? Referring to Eli's fathers. When they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh. Did I choose him out of the tribes of Israel, part of the Levitical priesthood, to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Eli is to reflect upon the goodness of God and the privileges that he enjoyed. These Levitical priests were separated from all the children of Israel and enjoyed these privileges that were unique in their service for God. But not only did they have privileges, they also had duties and responsibilities. So God confronts Eli regarding his indifference to his priestly duties. Verse 29, Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I command for my dwelling? Notice he is speaking to Eli. And the prophet doesn't say, why then do they scorn my sacrifices and my offerings? He says to Eli, why do you scorn them? Why do you take such an attitude towards my sacrifices that you allow this kind of behavior to go forward? This is a reflection on your priesthood. This is a reflection on the failure of your duty. Eli's behavior is inexcusable. Now God reveals what is central or at the heart or core of Eli's sinfulness, the way in which he has scorned the offerings of God. Notice the second half of 1 Samuel 2.29. And honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people of Israel. The key phrase there is honoring your sons above me. Honoring your sons above me. What is the sin of Eli honoring their sons, his sons over honoring God? 
The point is that Eli is more concerned with disappointing his sons than he is in disappointing God. He is more concerned with losing his son's approval than he is with God's approval. He is more concerned with what his sons think than what God thinks. He is choosing a side in all that is taking place. And unfortunately, he is choosing the side of his sons rather than the side of God. So God reveals the judgment that is going to come upon Eli's family. Verse 30. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, Far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. There's going to be a consequence of, for the actions of Eli's sons that are going to be uh, perpetuated in future generations. I will say more of that in a few moments. Thirdly, Eli fails to restrain his sons even after the rebuke of Samuel. So we have the rebuke of the people. Nothing changes. Then we have a prophet sent by God to speak to Eli, nothing changes. So now God is going to speak to Eli through Samuel. Things get progressively worse and worse with regards to Eli's apathy. Eli is going to ignore God's rebuke that comes through Samuel. In 1 Samuel chapter 3, Samuel receives a vision. We're going to look at this vision of Samuel and Samuel's role uh, as a young prophet uh, coming up next week. But suffice it to say for now that God gives Samuel a vision. And uh, he does so in such a way that Eli is well aware that uh, Samuel has received a vision. The content of the vision that that, uh, Samuel receives is given to us in verse 11. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel in which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew. Because his sons were blaspheming God, and he would not restrain them. The sons were blaspheming God. Eli knew that they were blaspheming God. The word to blaspheme is the exact opposite of the word to honor. To blaspheme is to speak evil concerning God. It is to bring reproach Upon God. It's not to exalt God or to lift him up. The sons were giving reason for the Israelites to speak evil of God's sacrifices, to speak evil of the worship at the temple, to speak evil of the priests, to speak evil of their religious foundation. They were blaspheming God. 
they were doing the exact opposite of what a priest was to do. That is to draw people closer to God. They were, in fact, driving people away from God. Making the offering of sacrifices an unpleasant experience, but also defiling those sacrifices so that they would not be expitiatory. They were so far as corrupt servants of God. These female servants of God who had come in good faith to honor and glorify God and to be servants of the temple in order to consecrate and devote their lives to the service of God who end up being defiled, who end up being corrupted. Again, the dishonoring of God. It was incredible. So let's go back to that question that was raised at the end of my first point. That is, what could Eli have done about this? Wasn't it out of its control? I mean, what can a father do if his sons are so wicked and they don't even know the Lord? And they're grown children. These are adults. So why is God so angry at Eli? What was his failure? After all, remember that he did rebuke his sons. Remember he did say that what they were saying, doing was evil. He did confront them. So where did he fail? It comes in God's estimation in 1 Samuel 3.13. I declare to him that I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and now this, and he did not refrain them. He did not restrain them even after Eli had been rebuked three times, he still did not remove his sons from the priestly office. That was his failure. That's what God is finding fault with. That's how Eli honored his sons more than God. He refused to remove them as priests. He allowed them to continue in their priestly function, continue in the abuse of the sacrifices, continue in the abuse of the women servants that were at the house of the temple, he refused to act. If you look at 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4, and we'll get to that in a couple of weeks, but I just want you to point out in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4, so, so the people went to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Two things I'd point out. One, it reminds us that these are the sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. The sons of Hophni and Phinehas were there. They accompanied the ark of God. They were continuing to function. 
And as we get to chapter 4, we realize that this is a horrendous situation, again, which God is displeased with, and it's going to bring a defeat to the nation of Israel. But all that to say this morning is that Eli chose his sons over God. He refused to move them from the priesthood. Eli's choices are going to have an impact upon generations to come. 1 Samuel 3.14 Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house should not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. There are going to be ramifications for future generations of Eli's descendants as a result of his failure in removing his sons. I think we really fail to understand the impact that previous generations can have on our faith. We can have a godly heritage for which we can be tremendously thankful. Uh, The example, uh, the choices that have made and all the benefits that come to us, to our children, our grandchildren, uh, because of a godly heritage. No man is an island. We need to realize that the sins that we commit are going to affect our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren. We pass down a heritage of godliness or a heritage of ungodliness. And it's important when we say ungodliness that we don't think purely in terms of being irreligious. Eli is a very religious individual. Eli prays. Eli's a priest. Eli offers sacrifices. But Eli fails in those prayers, in in those sacrifices, to bring himself under the authority of God. Eli is going through the motions. Eli knows better. Eli is not a worthless person. He knows the Lord. Eli is born again. Eli is helpful in the instruction that he gives to Samuel. But he fails. And one reason that God is so angry with Eli is because he knows better. He understands. And the rebuke became stronger and stronger as time went on. It moves from the people to a prophet that's sent by God to finally Samuel himself in a vision that Eli knows has come from God. What legacy are we leaving our children? Are we really doing what is best for our children? As godly parents, one of the dangers that we must uh, look out for is that we would honor our children over God. That we would fail to restrain our children. That we would fail to remove them from office. Fail, fail to keep them from leadership in the church, teaching Sunday school, doing things that would be inappropriate for 
them to do because we're more concerned about how they're going to respond to it, how they're going to react, than we are concerning how God views it and how it affects the church. Now I want us to look at the amazing response of Eli to all that takes place. Uh, If you look at 1 Samuel chapter 3, starting at verse 15. Samuel lay until morning. He got this vision during the night. So Samuel lay until morning, then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell Eli the vision. Vision we just referred to in chapter 2. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son, and he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do you more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So now Samuel's in this difficult spot to tell Eli all this negative stuff that God had revealed. Verse 18, so Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, here are Eli's words. It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. I wish I had an hour to reflect on this simple statement, it is the Lord. Let him do what good seems good to him. At first, that might sound respectful. That might sound as though he is exalting God and he is resigning himself to what the Lord is going to do, namely take the lives of his son. It is the Lord. I cannot find fault with God. It is the Lord. I can do nothing about it. But the point is that Eli is unrepentant. His response is, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. It is not I have sinned. It is not that I have been an unfaithful priest. It is not that all that God says is just and holy, and I must confess my sin before God. He doesn't acknowledge his wrongdoing, and he still does not remove his sons from the priesthood, even after all of that. He continues on, knowing what the outcome is going to be, knowing how God feels about all of this. He is still unrepentant. It is striking to me how religious-sounding So often we can be as Christians. We can take platitudes from the word of God. We can speak about God's sovereignty and how he is to be exalted and turn right around and complain about the particular circumstance and situation we're in. It is so easy to speak of God in lofty ways but respond to God in very lowly ways to speak of our commitment to him and then show a greater commitment to our family and to our friends. That when push comes to shove, 
even when it comes to Christian leadership, when we are to be caring for the welfare of the people of God, we choose our family over what is best for God. How do you explain the actions of Eli? You don't. This is not a passage to try to get into Eli's head. It's not for us to psychoanalyze Eli and all that's going on and all the inner turmoil and why it is that he ends up honoring his sons over God. We are not to seek to understand Eli. Rather, we are to learn from Eli's example. First, we are to fear that we might act like Eli. We are to be afraid that even the most religious and well-respected individuals, Eli was the high priest in Israel, and he ran amok. We must constantly be on guard for the entirety of our lives because it's easy to run amok. It's easy to lose sight of our privileges and duties. And it becomes easy to rather listen to and receive the approval of our families than the disapproval by doing what's right. We can choose family over God. So what are we to learn from Eli's example? First, we're to learn that there's a danger that is present for each of us to honor our loved ones over the Lord, to be more concerned with what our family members think than what God thinks. But secondly, we're to learn that honoring our family members over God will have a negative impact upon generations to come. Uh, this is not good for Eli, uh, for, excuse me, for Hophni and Phinehas. Their end is that they're going to lose their life. But it's not only bad for Hophni and Phinehas, it's bad for generations to come. If we think we're sparing our children, we are duping ourselves. If we think we can get away with uh, just simply turning a blind eye. Now, Eli didn't really turn a blind eye. He did speak to his sons, but when it came push to shove, he didn't do what he needed to do. When we fail to do what we need to do, it not only affects us, it affects future generations. We set an example. Not only do we set an example, but we set consequences. We set a trend. We set a style of behavior that becomes acceptable and approved. We lose our testimony and we lose the power of a godly life. And then thirdly, we're to learn that honoring our children over honoring God has a negative impact upon the people of God in our period of time on the church. Eli's failure has a negative consequence for all of Israel. So too, the negative examples and conduct of the spiritual leaders of the church are going to have a negative impact on all the people of the church. 
If we honor our family over honoring our God, everyone suffers for that. Everyone learns a bad example. People get turned off to the things of God, even as the children of Israel resented going to the temple. People will resent to go to church. People will resent that kind of leadership. Reports, comments are going to abound. People will find fault. When we tolerate in our own family conduct that we would not tolerate in other people's families, we are more than hypocrites. We are destructive to the name of Christ. We're destructive to the work of God. Everyone suffers. So what will our response be? Well, this has been a pretty negative message this morning for Father's Day. And may I just say, if this brings conviction, let us repent. Let us change. Let us say, I'm going to do something about it. I'm not going to sit idly by. May it motivate us to action. And on the other hand, if we can invite God to search our hearts and know our minds and look in the mirror and say, you know, I honestly believe that I'm seeking to honor God more than honoring my children. Then I say, well done. Then I say, rejoice. And I also say, continue to pray. Continue that God would guard your heart that you might remain faithful and you might remain diligent. For sometimes it is harder as we get older than when we are younger. We lose perspective. We lose sight of our duties, our privileges, and we rejoice and our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, more than we rejoice in God. May he guard our hearts. May we remain faithful to him. May we find the positive example of Hannah who presents her sons to the Lord, who presents Samuel, dedicates him to the Lord, and Samuel is greatly used of God. And contrast that to an Eli who fails to consecrate his sons, though he's a priest, and though they are priests also. Let's pray. Almighty God, help us this morning. We do rejoice in the privilege of being fathers. And uh, Lord, may we learn from this, for it's not just fathers, it's mothers, it's sisters, it's brothers, it's aunts, it's uncles, it's grandparents. Lord, uh, guard us all that we don't place our families before God. Lord, help us to be a Hannah. Help us to consecrate, dedicate our children to the Lord. Oh, Lord, help us in difficult situations. Give us wisdom to know what to do, how to respond. But may we respond in obedience to you. 
For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.